Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and today I'm with Elizabeth McNulty and Megan Crow. And we are in a particular place to talk about this topic because Megan and Elizabeth just got finished interviewing for our clerkship positions for next year. And since I've been with our firm, I have done those first initial interviews at the law schools in town each year for a couple of years. And by doing those interviews, you start to build a book basically on things you see over and over again that you think are good. And then the other things become pet peeves. And those interviewees have no idea that maybe they put something on their resume or did something in their interview that you just wouldn't recommend to anyone. So we wanted to give you some tips today for interviewing for clerkship positions while you're in law school. And to give you some background, we hire about 15 clerks per year and each team gets set up with a clerk, each attorney usually. As well, we have all clerked at our firm. So we were also the interviewee with our firm. Let's start with cover letters. Megan, when you are reading a cover letter for our clerkship, what kinds of things are you looking out for? What kinds of things hit your eye? I'd first and foremost like to know what uh, legal experience that they've had. And I know they have a full resume dedicated to that. But in a cover letter, I'd like to see maybe one thing that says this is some experience that I have that will translate into the job that I want. For instance, we've been interviewing a lot of 2Ls, and typically they will have some kind of legal experience after their 1L year. And in a cover letter, I'd like to see, you know, this is some experience I have. This is briefly what I did at this job and skills I gained. That is more valuable to me than maybe some fluffy language because, you know, after you read so many of them, man, the fluffy language gets repetitive and it's kind of meaningless when you say certain things like, you know, this is how I add value. I'm a hard worker. Those are good things to be. But I think in a cover letter, I'm less interested in reading that because I, I see it and I it brushes right off my shoulders. Um, I don't really put any stock into it. I'd like to grip onto something a little bit more meaningful in a cover letter. I think that it's fine to include those traits that you have about yourself. Like I'm a herd worker and this is how I can display that because I've done X, Y, and Z, or I'm really great at multitasking. I was president of this club and I got a 4.0 that semester. So I think that you can say those things about yourself in a cover letter, but you have to be able to back them up with your experience because at the end of the day, the cover letter is probably the first thing that the person is reading and you just need to make sure that you're making a good impression and really selling yourself. So I think there's a pretty standard formula to follow in a cover letter. First paragraph needs to be what position you're looking for. And then I would like include some things about the firm, why you want to work there, show that you've done some research. It's not just a generic cover letter that you're applying to like the 15 firms you're applying to. And then I would go into like things that make you stand out as a candidate. But I mean, truthfully, I just kind of scam a cover letter, but make sure there aren't any glaring errors because you'll it's a way to weed people out. 
Definitely. And I want to preface this with any advice that I have at this point about cover letters, resumes, interviewing. I've probably made this mistake. So if I went back and looked at my cover letters, which I remember writing them and applying for, I think I applied for like 77 federal clerkships at the same time or something and had to adjust cover letters to that. I mean, they can absolutely be form, especially if you're doing on-campus interviewing and have the opportunity to apply to like 20 firms at the same time and they're all due on the same day. And depending on what work you're juggling in your classes, you may, you know, have to just get something in there. But when I was reading cover letters over the past couple of years, the same thing always catches my eye as a mistake. And that is to start out with, um, you know, I'm applying for this position and then telling the person how you think it will benefit you. At least for our clerkship, the clerks that we hire are doing actual attorney work that otherwise we would be doing on the cases. And while I want our clerks to have a really good experience and I can tell them and let them know how our clerkship is going to help their experience and what they'll be able to learn, I'm more interested in what they can do for us, you know, and what their experience is. And not necessarily like, I'm happy that you think that, you know, this will advance your career in some way, but it just always kind of hits my eye weird. And and I want to discourage anyone from including that in their cover letter. Also, Megan, what you were saying about you know, a lot of fluffy language or kind of these deep overarching platitudes of like explaining why you went to law school or, you know, what pivotal time in your life caused you to seek out the law. That's fine. But also know that most of the attorneys who are looking at the cover letter, they're going through their day. They're doing real world work. They are moving their cases forward. And kind of those, you know, overarching platitudes and, you know, origin stories, save those for your interview. If they come up and if you're reading your interviewer correctly, you know, you might want to give one of those answers to a question. If you're asked, like, how, how did you get to law school? You know, what in your background made you believe that you wanted to be a lawyer? That's the time to give those answers as opposed to in a cover letter. The other thing that I have seen time and time again is I think career services offices at, at law schools have packets of resumes and cover letters as examples. I would extremely discourage anyone from using those examples as a template except for the resume. Use a resume template. They're usually very organized. That's why they're being used as a template. But yes, Elizabeth, you said you need to include certain basic information in your cover letter, but don't use the same template. Don't try to, you know, write the same sentence and just apply it to yourself because Probably if a bunch of other people are applying for that job and you're competing with law students at your same law school, they're all looking at the same templates too. And then your cover letter or even your thank you note. I I got two thank you notes last year with the same wording. And I was looking and I got them on the same day because we interviewed the people, like several people on the same day. And I was looking at them and I'm like, huh, 
okay, well, that seems genuinely a template. (laughs) Yeah. So don't use those templates word for word. Use them maybe for overarching substance um, and maybe what to include. But you do want to stand out. And the way you do that is not, you know, it's not about writing the right cover letter or the right thank you note. It's about writing a cover letter or thank you note from who you are as a person. And you just mentioned the term stand out. You know, the goal of applying is to stand out in a good way. And, you know, before we embark on the process of interviewing, we get resumes and cover letters and we read through them by, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100. By and large, I don't think a cover letter is typically going to be remarkable and be memorable and stand out in my mind. There might be a few that stand out in a bad way and a few that stand out in a good way. And when I'm thinking about this most recent interviewing experience that we just did a couple weeks ago, the few cover letters that stood out to me in a good way all mentioned specific things about our firm. And by that, a couple of them that stood out to me uh, mentioned that they were listeners of this podcast, Yells in the Courtroom. Those stood out to me in a good way because it kind of indicated that they took an extra step in interest in our firm. A couple others that stood out to me mentioned that they liked our firm because of the various ways that we're involved in the community. And that's stood out to me because that was one of my main draws to this firm is the level of connectedness that our firm has to our city and our community and and my alumni law school. Those stood out to me for good reasons. So I guess my advice is to take any steps that you can to maybe connect yourself to what makes that law firm unique. Yeah, and tailoring it to the law firm, tailoring your cover letter You can get there by looking at the website and kind of investigating, but it doesn't stop at, you know, like listing out the practice areas that you saw on the website and saying that that's what you're interested in. A couple of years ago, I read a, I was interviewing for one of the positions on my team and the person said, you know, I see that your firm does intellectual property and I'm really interested in that because I took one class. And it kind of like put them in a niche and I'm like, okay, so do you not want to do med mal? <laughs> and that wasn't the case at all. They had just, you know, seen that and thought that that might make their letter stand out, but they didn't have any IP background. So that's not very helpful to the IP team. So the IP team wasn't interested in talking to them. So I think the better idea would be to talk to professors or career services or find a connection to either a lawyer or even better, a friend of one of the lawyers at the firm that you're interviewing for who can tell you about the firm and give you a sense like, yes, this is what they do or, you know, they do all litigation. And if your cover letter says you're interested in transactional work, that's not going to be a good fit. So if you, you know, really want to get experience anywhere, don't niche yourself into that kind of stuff in your cover letter. Elizabeth, so we had a raucous discussion prior to recording (laughs) this podcast about what I didn't know was such a controversial issue is putting hobbies on your resume or not. What do you think about that? I also did not realize this is such a controversial issue because I probably made it a controversial (laughs) issue. I had strong opinions. I am pro hobbies and interests at the bottom of your resume. It's something that I heard in law school to do. Most resumes I see now have them, and uh, I still remember what mine were on my resume. 
I think that it can help you um, stand out. And if you have a commonality with your interviewer or who's ever going through those resumes, like, oh, I like that. It helps make interviews more like conversational and less like an interrogation. I had Kentucky basketball on mine and it came up in like almost every interview. So I think that it can kind of help it seem more natural. And I don't know. I, I see nothing wrong with it. But I'm open to hear what other people <laughs> might have to say about that. So my example was that actually when I was a clerk at this firm, we were hiring the next round of clerks. And I was working for Amy. And Amy gave my friend Jenny and I, who I was clerking with, the resumes and said, tell me who you think looks good. And one of the people had baking cookies at the bottom of her resume. And like, yes, that's like cute and sweet. But I looked at that and I was just like, what? Okay. Like, I don't know. I think I was like, be more serious. My thought was, sure, that's fine if, you know, baking cookies is you were getting up at 5 a.m. and working at the local bakery in the neighborhood you grew up in and were busting your butt every day. Like, that's something I want to hear about. But, like, if it's just your hobby and, like, everyone likes a good chocolate chip cookie on a Sunday, like, that's <laughs> fine. It just didn't give much substance. But what you're talking about, like, saying, like, you have a particular interest, like, I'm into Kentucky basketball. Anyone who sees that, if they're also a fan – they're going to want to talk about that during your entire interview, and that's going to leave a great impression on them. And people who aren't into basketball aren't going to care, which is fine. So it either needs to be innocuous, something that you can really talk about and is interesting, and, and that's the way to do it. I mean, if you have a really good hobby, like you are on a rowing team on the weekend or something, that's cool. I want to hear about it. I'm probably going to pick up on that on your resume too. But if you put your hobbies as watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which is not a fake example, that's a real example that Liz shared with us prior to recording, maybe that's not the right tone to strike. But you made the good point that Maybe the person doesn't want to work at a firm who would think that putting what reality TV you watch on your resume isn't funny. I, I don't know. Well, I think that, you know, those people who include hobbies and interests on their resumes are also doing us a favor because I can get a better idea or sense of who you are as a person by what you put down. And if, you know, I think that we'd get along or I think we wouldn't get along. Um, and maybe that's me making a snap judgment, but you chose those hobbies, you put them on there. So, and I think that a lot of these jobs are kind of about chemistry and how well you work with the person. So I think that that gives me a better indication of maybe your personality than like, you know, where you went to college and what your grades are. But those things are equally as important. So I think the lesson here is be careful about what you put on as your hobbies if you're going to do that and make sure it's something that you actually are interested in or do because you might get asked questions and if you don't know anything about rowing but you put it down then you're uh, screwed. I can appreciate the reasoning that Elizabeth is explaining for putting hobbies in and it being a, a point of commonality maybe um, that you can go off of. I've always been in the camp that I think adding hobbies to a resume is weird and unprofessional. <laughs> but I don't know. That's just maybe me, my weird type A. 
I guess I'm I'm more anti-hobby. First of all, they kind of make me roll my eyes. Sometimes I'll see a hobby listed and I roll my eyes because it feels maybe disingenuous. And I think this a good rule of thumb, kind of going back to what Erica and Elizabeth already said, is that if you're going to list it, make sure it's interesting and genuine and you can substantively talk about it. I mean, you might be able to substantively talk about keeping up with the Kardashians for a half hour, but it's not really something that is going to um, let me know any more about you. The most important thing for me is that I can have a natural flowing conversation with them. I think that says a lot more than question and answer style deposition formats almost. And um, I, I just think that those interests and those things tend to come out in an interview, even if they're not listed on a resume. For example, when I was interviewing for my clerkship at this firm, I had my prior work history on there. I didn't have any legal experience because I was a 1L, um, so I just had my like actual summer job experience listed on there. And one of them was a country club in Tuscaloosa where I went to undergrad. And someone asked me, what was the best food that they served at the country club? And I said shrimp and grits. And then that got us really on a conversation about that. And so I didn't have it as a hobby that, you know, I loved Southern cooking, but it was just kind of a natural point of the conversation. And I think that is the hallmark of a good interview is when you can have those natural conversations and learn what people's hobbies are. But I do understand that, you know, it's kind of a shortcut to there. Yeah, and I guess, Elizabeth, you're kind of convincing me <laughs> during this podcast, Glad so uh, good job advocating for your position. But I agree with you too, Megan, that like it's all about the chemistry in an interview. And sometimes you don't have to be so hard on yourself if you didn't have good chemistry in an interview. It just may not be the right fit, and that's okay too. When I'm interviewing someone, I'm not saying I know within the first you know five minutes, but if it's really hard to get that conversation going or you never get to that point where it's really conversational as opposed to just question and answer, then that candidate's not going to stick out in my mind. I think you just need to know your audience. And the idea of like putting your hobby as keeping up with the Kardashians, that might be very honest. You may know all the seasons and you may be able to talk about it backwards and forwards. But if you don't know that you are interviewing with like maybe a like-minded person who you think might also be into the Kardashians. If you sit down and, you know, the interviewer is a mid-50s dude who is like, yeah, I've heard of Kim. Isn't she married to Con that Kanye guy? You know, like, and that'll even be out of date in a couple months, I think. <laughs> you know, that may not work. So I think the takeaway there is to tailor your, even your resume, tailor your resume to potentially who is conducting the interview or reviewing the applications. And if you can find that out, that's going to be really important as well. And just ask, ask the career services people. They know year after year who comes to do the interviews if they're on campus, or they know who they're sending the packet to, and they can give you more context about who is your audience. One last suggestion for whoever put Kim Kardashian or the Kardashians as their interest. Um, a safer thing, go a little broader, put reality TV. If the interviewer is interested right. in that, they'll ask. Then that gives you your opportunity, you know. So I think you either go broad or if you really want to, you know, die on the hill of the Kardashian family, then you know, go for <laughs> it. Megan, any other tips for resumes? 
Yeah. So what I like to see on a resume also is maybe a more uh, meaningful discussion of work that you've done. Another pet peeve I have about resumes is when I see uh, a lot of different maybe clubs or activities listed and they're not really meaningful. When you think that you need to join everything and go to one meeting and put it on your resume and that's going to make it look better, I think that what actually looks better is maybe having one thing that you're more involved in and then you can have a more in-depth and meaningful conversation in your interview about that uh, activity or club or whatever it may be. I know at least at the law school that I went to, they had a lot of different clubs and you could write your name on all of them and put all of them on your resume. But if I'm looking at that, I don't think that that conversation is going to get anywhere if I were to eventually interview that person because they wouldn't have much to say. And I can't really get an idea from that of what they're actually interested in. One of the recent interviews, I asked someone about one of the clubs that they listed, of which I had been a president of in law school. And I was like, so what position do you have? And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, oh, well, I was the president of that. You know, like I remember, you know, the events we had for that club and what we did on campus. And and they hadn't like participated in any of the what I would call the signature events for that club. Like they hadn't done. We did a speed dating networking thing that has continued on with that club. And they didn't you know, they've never done that. And it just didn't it fell into what you're saying. Like it didn't move the needle at all. And it seemed like it was just a resume filler. Now, with that being said, I think I probably made that mistake. <laughs> like, oh, I for sure did. I listed all my clubs, although I might have been more involved with one or two. And maybe it would have made more sense to do that. But going back to our discussion about the hobbies, and I know I it's, <laughs> it's just it's the only thing we all disagree about. Um, I was thinking about it on my resume at the bottom in law school, I had community involvement as a heading. And you might want to think about, depending on what your hobby is, um, if you're on a team or a sport or, you know, my example was canoeing, if you row, you know, that is something you do in your community. Or whether, you know, you're part of an organization or a church or something like that. I mean, those things fall under that heading too. I think I changed that heading to community involvement because it included some volunteer work and some nonprofit stuff, but also like coaching my high school's mock trial team. And so I kind of put those all under there. And I don't know if I would have called that, you know, coaching my high school's mock trial team when I was in law school. I don't know if I would have called that a hobby, but it is something that was like fun to do on the weekends. Like the students were super interested and it was something that can start one of those conversations. So it was on there. That's kind of an area that an interviewer can kind of latch on to. Like, tell me about what you do in that organization. I will say I'm anti-hobbies, but I fully endorse the community involvement section. There we go. <laughs> to me, a, a hobby, at least it, I will say this is from what I've seen. The hobbies tend to be things like I enjoy running and community involvement is usually something a little bit more in depth. Like I volunteer with this organization and then that organization will maybe give a little bit more insight about what that person is passionate about and what kind of person they are. And so that's why I think there's a little distinction. I just think maybe that means that you haven't ran across an interviewer or resume with a hobby that resonated with you. So you didn't care about it. <laughs> that's fair. But also one thing about community involvement is when I was in law school, I was applying 
applying in different cities. And so don't put community involvement in St. Louis if you're applying to jobs in New York or D.C. because those places will not care and it will they won't pick you because they think that you'll want to stay in St. Louis. So that's just one thing to be careful of if you're trying to go to a different geographical area. But you can join the bar associations in those cities that can kind of help you show your interest in those cities. Uh, One tip for anyone who uh, that might apply to. So let's talk about the actual interview. Maybe things that you remember from being the interviewee, but also what you've learned from being an interviewer. Elizabeth. When I worked here after my first year of law school, but I still went through the OCI process through Wash U the summer before 2L, I think. And so I probably sat for 50 screener interviews in various cities. And it's a really stressful process. They're in hotels. It's really weird. There's lots of very competitive law students there. It's not very fun. And it can be really stressful. But the one thing is that you're just trying to stand out. You're trying to find a common interest with the interviewer and you're trying to sell yourself. So I think one of the best tips I got was from an interview consultant through our career services center who did mock interviews. And the first question most interviewers ask is, so tell me about yourself. And a lot of people, I think I used to do it. I know a lot of students still do it. They say, well, you know, I'm from such and such city. I went to here for high school. Then I went to college and now I'm here for law school and I want to be an attorney and blah, blah, blah. And that's just a waste of a good answer because you need to have some sort of elevator speech and that's an opportunity to really sell yourself and tell me more about your traits. You can include some of those things, but you also need to weave in like why you wanted to be a lawyer and what you want to do or something like that just to kind of, again, not waste the opportunity to sell yourself. And I think that that's something that I never really thought of until, you know, it came to my attention. I think it's a good tip for a lot of people who might be embarking on these interviews because I've I've heard it um, several times throughout this interviewing season. Good interviews to me are a little bit more natural than that, you know, rapid fire Q&A deposition style form of questioning. And for me, often that first question that I ask or topic that I bring up after tell me about yourself is leading from their answer. They'll say something and then I will want to follow up on it. So having something to go off of in that initial elevator pitch is really helpful for me, at least as an interviewer, to kind of know what direction to take the interview. And if it just kind of falls flat and the rest of the interview, I think typically is stays pretty stagnant. Again, it's really important to find out who you're interviewing with, even in one of those screener interviews, and at least have read that person's bio. You might get lucky and they may have hobbies at the bottom of their online bio that says, you know, I live in this area and (laughs) this is what I do for fun. So maybe you can bring those up. Knowing your audience, knowing what type of work they do so you can not only speak to it, but also be able to ask them questions about it. And you can have generic questions for the interviewer ready to help conversation get going. You can say to them, like, can you tell me a little bit more about your clerkship and what you have clerks do in your office? That's a perfectly reasonable question. No one's ever going to be like, oh, we expected you to know exactly what the job is. Like, you know, we'd love to tell you what we have clerks do. I mean, 
by and large, we really like working with clerks and it's fun. So I like to, you know, share with people what's going to be involved. And also, if you have a couple of questions in your back pocket that are broad questions like that, they can kind of get things going. You want to be ready to have something that will keep the interview going. Keep in mind, every interviewer is going to be particular. So there's things you're not going to be able to prepare for. The way I expect an interview to go is going to be completely different than someone who is, you know, the complete opposite personality of me. So making sure you kind of have some of those questions in your pocket will help you be less nervous because you'll know where to go if there's silence or if you need to take the interview in a different direction or maybe you're not feeling the chemistry. Based on the answer from the interviewer, you can maybe then ask more detailed questions or get into a more detailed conversation about the work or what they do. Most people like to talk about themselves and what they do. So that helps as well. That was one of my two main bullets of interview tips. One, have meaningful questions. And two, don't answer in a one-word answer. Yes or no, even if it's a yes or no question, is not usually a sufficient answer. Try and build off of it and use it as an opportunity to explain why it's a yes or no and use it as an opportunity to showcase your skills or showcase some thing about you that you want the interview to know that will set you apart from other people. So just answering a yes or no question with yes and then waiting for the next question is usually not my favorite way to spend an interview. I don't think that would ever really be appropriate to just answer yes or no, like what a waste of opportunity. But I don't think that it's, or at least from my perspective, it's ever really appropriate as the person being interviewed to kind of drive the bus. I think that like until I ask you if you have any questions, I don't think that you should just start asking me questions when like I'm the person interviewing you. So I would maybe... <laughs> you seem to work too hard in your interviews. I let them <laughs> ask me things. <laughs> no, that just drives me crazy. But I think that you absolutely have to ask questions as the interviewee. You cannot not ask any questions. That just looks so lazy and so disinterested. So it's fine if you ask the same two questions in every interview. I don't care. But you have to be prepared to ask some questions. And they don't necessarily need to be geared towards what I do. I'm not really that impressed that you can, like, Google our firm and find out one thing about me. I guess it shows some, like interest. But one thing, please stop asking this question. Please do not ask about our firm's culture. I cannot ever think that you get an honest answer with that. I don't know how to answer that question very well. And I, it drives me nuts. I've been asked it like, I don't know, I've done interviews for the past three years, and I've probably been asked it like 25 times. And it I, it's just not a good question to ask. That comes from like the standard advice that everybody gets. And I I saw that a lot over the last couple of years. I kept getting the exact same question when I inevitably always said like to end the interview, do you have any questions for me? And invited them to ask questions. And that's when everyone will give you the advice, like, you always have to have a question. And that's fine. I agree with that. It would be a little lackluster to be like, no, thank you. But whatever question the career services office gives you, okay, take that question and put it on a list of things not to ask. And I say that because everybody else that you're competing against, all your other – and it – 
depends on how big your market is too, right? We're talking about conducting interviews in St. Louis. There's two law schools in St. Louis. We interview from those two law schools by and large. There's going to be two groups of students that we interview and they're going to be competing against their colleagues in law school. But if you get that advice, take those questions and put them on the do not ask list and come up with something that has the same feel or is in the same vein and ask your own question. I mean that I even got like the question phrased the exact same way. All that told me is that you didn't put a lot of effort into preparing yourself for the interview. I think most of the energy in preparing for an interview or conducting the interview or being in the interview should be focused on making a connection with that person just as if you met someone on the street. You know, you want to be impressive and you want to take the opportunity to show them your personality and your skill set. But at the same time, connecting with that person and getting them to engage with you is what will get you a job. When I interviewed for clerks over the past couple of years, I took a look at their resume and cover letter and writing sample like for five seconds, literally before I interviewed them. And if I made a connection with them or they engaged me in some way, then I would go back and put those people in the smaller pile. And then I would honestly look at their writing sample because that's what's going to show me most of your skills and if I think that you'll be able to keep up with us. So that was my process. Well, I think that that's really good advice because especially for a lot of these jobs that law students are applying for, they could potentially have opportunities post-grad. And so this is a firm or, you know, um, a position, maybe you're going in a public interest that you could be at for a long time. So you want to make sure that you're being yourself, but being the best version of yourself. And you should also like your interviewer. If you don't feel it with them as the student, then maybe that's not the right place for you because you also have some power in this decision. And You shouldn't just go work for somebody just because, you know, they're offering you a job. You should definitely make sure that you're yourself and that it's going to be a good fit for you in the long run as well, because it's just as important as getting the job. That was literally one of my notes that I wrote down was be yourself. You gain nothing if you conform to what you think that someone else is going to want or maybe expects. And then if you get that job and you start and you're clearly not a good fit, that that just doesn't that doesn't benefit either party. Being yourself is different from not putting your best foot forward. Like you obviously want to put your best foot forward and you can still do that and and be a genuine version of yourself. And I also liked, Erica, I just, I know this is going back, but I really liked what you said about taking a question and um, kind of transforming it because I don't mind the question, tell me about your culture. I mean, it phrased that way is kind of obnoxious, but I do think it's important to know the culture of a firm, but I think there's ways that you can get to know that and get a feel for that. That's not just straight up asking, what's your culture? Because that's kind of a weird, affronting question. But questions you can ask that will get you to the same place is, you know, how close are you to your colleagues? Yeah. Um, Do you get an opportunity to work with your colleagues on projects or do you guys work more independently? Like you can ask specific questions about culture. Well, I just think a lot of those are just going to get such stock answers. Oh, I love my colleagues. They're great. I love working here. It's the greatest place in the world. Like, I just think it's a waste of a question because you're just going to get like a really like 
fake answer. Okay. All right. Well, then let me challenge you. You had just given the advice that you should get to know the firm and that it's a good fit for you. How do you suggest that our listeners who are law students do that? I think the best way, and it's not an opportunity at every place, but when I was interviewing for the firm, I came, I did a screener and then I came into the firm and I interviewed with like three or four people, one of them being Erica. Oh and my gosh, was it? Yeah. Erica, you interviewed me too. Oh boy. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> but I think there you were able to get a better feel for how the attorneys interacted with each other. You could tell it was a very friendly place, very comfortable. And so I could tell immediately that like this was like a, a cool place place to work. So I think that that's kind of, it's it's hard. It's hard to understand a firm's culture, but I, as a person who works at the firm, can't really explain it to you either. And I think it's hard. I give a genuine answer to that question. I'm just not sure that every interviewer gives a really genuine and honest answer to that question. Like if you ask someone that at a big law firm, are they going to be like, I love all my colleagues. I love this place. It's not toxic at all. Like, I just don't know who you are. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, we're discrediting you. I think you do get a sense of the firm just based on how the feel of your conversation goes. I yeah. mean, what questions is your interviewer asking? How it goes kind of says probably a lot about what type of people work there. Well, and also, if you show your own personality in the interview, sometimes the person interviewing you is thinking like, oh, I think that person will get along with this person who I'm, you know, interviewing for a position with that attorney. So if you're more reserved and the interviewer is more outgoing or vice versa, keep in mind, they might be on the lookout for someone who you might match really well with. So if you stay true to your style and try to be as authentic as you can and not turn into a robot that career services may have suggested that you become for an interview, you might get further through the process. Here's a question for the group. Tell me about a time when you overcame adversity type questions. Do you love them or hate them? I really like behavioral questions, but I know that students do not like getting asked them. And I did them in my first year of interviewing because I had been asked them. And I think they're great opportunities to kind of showcase your strengths and like talk about things that your resume doesn't like blurt out at the person reading it. But it can tell if someone's really not prepared for an interview because they'll just kind of look at you and be like, uh, great question. Hmm, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, it's a weed out question. But I do know that it's, they're harder questions to answer. And sometimes I feel mean asking them because <laughs> I don't want to feel really uncomfortable when you can't answer my question. But I think that they're really useful. And I know that some big law firms do a whole panel of behavioral questions for like an hour. And I've never sat through one of those. But I think it shows how able you are to think on your feet. And that's so important in our job. And I think that that will tell you a lot about whether that candidate is going to be able to cut it here or not. Okay, let's talk about the last part of these interviews, which are the follow-up communication or the thank you note. Elizabeth. Okay, so this is actually something I'm on the fence about, and so was my career services, if you can imagine them not having an opinion on something. Send it or not, because lots of people do it, but if there is a mistake in it, you will be an immediate no. And I have received them where... They called me Emily. Uh -oh. Oh, no. And so it was an immediate no. So it's just like, but maybe I would have hired that person had I not. So what do you think? Send the email or not? 
Or maybe your pro handwritten note, which I think is impressive, but I don't know how you have the time for that. Oh, I was thinking you were talking only exclusively handwritten notes. Well, they say that they make the decision so fast you won't have the time to get the note. I was going to say, I like a thank you email. I've never gotten a handwritten thank you note. Ooh, I always get handwritten thank you notes. I've gotten a few. Well, I just had my first round of interviewing a couple weeks ago. So I didn't get a single thank you email. And I I mean, I do really like them, but if they have mistakes, it cuts against you. So I like a thank you email. I will say I liked getting them the sooner, the better, maybe not the second after the interview, but I got a couple a couple days later and I was kind of like, which one was that again? And by that time, I know some of our decisions had already made. I mean, we start kind of wheeling and dealing and talking about these candidates immediately after the interviews. So Maybe this is just personal preference of mine, but I think if you send a follow-up email saying thank you that same day, that's probably the the best way to do it in my opinion. I thought it was more natural when they came through the same day. Yeah. So here's the answer. You send an email a couple hours later and don't oversell it. Just say, you know, so-and-so, thanks for your time today. I really appreciated our conversation. I look forward to hearing from you. And that's all you need to say. Totally Although then, follow my advice from earlier, don't exactly say that because everybody else will who listen to this podcast. (laughs) I think if you can like bring up maybe one thing that you talked about in the interview that really stood out to you, it can also kind of jog the person's memory of who you are, especially if they've interviewed 25 people that day. So I think that is like a really nice touch. We have covered quite a bit today on tips for interviewing, resumes, cover letters, and thank you notes. As you can see, there's a lot of differing opinions. So I think the string that has run through this episode is to be yourself, be creative, and don't fit your materials and your personality into a mold. Be yourself. So good luck on your next interview. If you're interviewing with one of us and you mention this episode, you get bonus points. (laughs) And we'll see you on the next episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Subscribe to Heels in the Courtroom now and check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library. The Jury is Out podcast from nationally recognized attorney John Simon offers insights and mentorship to attorneys who want to stay at the top of their game. Check it out.